Whether you're dealing with does in heat and bucks in rut, the winter blues, the marathon of kidding season in the spring, or show season in the summer, Nate Funk and John Kane of Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast, are with you every step of the way, bringing you interviews from various breeders, judges, and others from all over the country. We're always covering the latest ad good news and covering topics to help make us all better dairy goat breeders. What's up, everyone, and welcome to Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. I'm John, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and best friend over here, Nate Funk. Nate, how's it going, brother? Going pretty well. It's uh, you know, beautiful evening tonight. Just relaxing. It sounds like we got some uh, a pretty cool guest here. We do have a cool guest on this week, Nate. Nate, we've got Mark Warnke on. He's from Idaho. Mark is the owner of PackGoats.com, where he's really on the leading edge of a young sport of pack goats. Uh, And he also breeds his own pack goats and offers a lot of information to the community through YouTube and on his Facebook page. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hey, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Fun, fun to visit with some fellow goat nerds. (laughs) Well, Mark... Pack goating, like I said, is a really young sport. How did you get into it? Um, so, you know, I, I, I loved my wife and my children, and I loved the mountains. And when you're 13 miles in and packing in your, your camp and your food and your comfort, quote unquote, it's, it's, it's a blood sport. It's hard, right? It hurts. And um, so getting the people I loved who weren't as passionate about as I was uh, into those spaces looked impossible. And it was really heartbreaking for me. So I began to look into stock and I had run llamas and horses and mules. And, and somebody mentioned that, that, that the goats were feasible. And as a kid, we had a goat named Daisy and it was one of my favorite pets. I mean, we were like the laughing stock of the neighborhood because you know, our goat would go out and irrigate with my dad along with our two Labradors. And, you know, I, I really loved that little goat. And um, so I thought, well, cool personality and um, an animal that might be able to, you know, be held in a smaller container and in our little small space at that time, we had just over an acre and it, it, it became possible. And so I got two and, you know, that was almost 10 years ago now. And, you know, I just... There weren't many resources. There wasn't much gear. Um, there wasn't any information, really. There were just some kind of kind folks that had done it. Um, at that time, I think there were about legitimately maybe 10 people who really knew what they were doing in America. But even those people were people who only went on maybe one or three trips a year. And I was the kind of guy that was doing 500 miles a year in the backcountry. And so, like I do with all things, I'm kind of an all-or-nothing guy, and I just, I dove all the way in and, you know, started making the gear, started, you know, seeing how far the limitations of these guys are, what, you know, what, what works, what didn't, and, you know, I didn't really accept any of the current information as fact. I challenged it all and, I guess, kind of became an innovator in the Paco world, and, and now here I might find myself 10, 10 years later, and, you know, it's what's feeding my family. That's awesome. I mean, you started making your own gear as well because there wasn't any out there, right? 
Um, there was there was deer, but doing the mileage I was doing, it was chewing my goats up. Um, not not unlike goats, and and we're all aware of this. And it's one of the you know one of the things that's been really neat about the tobacco world is you know I'll show my string crossing logs and creeks and that sort of thing. And those those vid those those little short snippet videos on different you know, social platforms. And I've always been kind of a big influencer of the hunting industry through YouTube and, and Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. But some of those videos will do like, you know, literally like 20 million views, Mm -hmm. you know, a a couple of weeks. And so as a result, we really showed up on the radar and people started calling me the goat guy. And, and, and so the reason that big story apologize is that I've always felt that goats were like the unsung hero of the anointed animals that God chose to coexist with human beings. Um, I think all animals need to be revered in in, in the same way that he did pick special ones for us to work alongside. And goats have it all. They are like the number one animal. And I, I, I wasn't born a goat nerd. I just got into pack goating, but you know, I was training hunting dogs when I was 12. I've had frogs and turtles and <laughs> been a hunter my whole life and, and, in a, and in a, you know, an animal nerd. Um, but at that time, not unlike goats in general, and that's my big rabbit hole here, is that, you know, they're the redheaded stepchild of the animal world. They don't have science that knows them. They don't have vets that know them. They don't have the general public that has even the slightest clue about what they are and how amazing they are as a critter. They don't have a human steward. They don't have somebody standing up for them. And they deserve that. And and, and they've been aligned with all this satanic imaging and nothing could be further from the truth of who they are as an animal. So not unlike um, that unfortunate you know, key you know aspect of goats in all the other ways, they also had gear that were really designed from the thought process of the horse and mule and llama world that didn't work for goats. Um, it didn't fit right. It wasn't comfortable for them. And until we made them proper gear, we never really knew what they could do. So the gear that I was using to finally answer your question was chewing the crap out of my goats in a 10 mile day on the trail. And they had saddle sores, and so as a result, they underperformed. And I just said, "Man, there's got to be something better," and there wasn't, so I just made it. Now, how did you, you know, so you have the mule, the pack mule equipment? How, what ways did you modify the design specifically for the goat? Um, so, great question. So, our saddles really technologically advanced in, in terms of all the pack world so it's a fully customizable saddle in terms of fit with a rigid frame because you need vertical stability to hold weight it has to be it has to be able to sit on the shoulders of you know of their rib cage to be able to have something to hang it on but have zero pressure on the spinous process you also have to you know you also have to acknowledge that you have this free-floating appendage you know in a, um, you know, in a scapula that's, that's moving, that can't touch the saddle. And so not unlike a mule, that saddle wants to creep up on their weathers. And if it gets up there, that's an instant saddle sore. So to keep that saddle back, the only way is with a really good custom fit. The only other way 
is the second best saddle that's on the market that was really designed for llamas. It's called the Sopras. And the Sopras is a soft saddle design. And so it conforms to them. But when you have a soft saddle as opposed to a rigid, you have to have crazy cinch pressure to keep that saddle from spinning. Mm-hmm. You know, if, okay. you, you know, so, so ours has really light cinch pressure so they can breathe. And you know, these are animals that are huffing and puffing up the mountain. The other thing is, is the entire rest of the, the, the stock world has basically a breast collar, something that hooks to the saddle and is a single strap that runs along up the top of their shoulders where their neck joins their shoulders. And it didn't work for goats. It was pinching their esophagus when they climbed the mountains. They were, you know, when they were climbing steep country, it was a cough fest because they had pressure on their esophagus and it just didn't work. So we went to a yoke design. So we have a circular yoke that, that basically creates equalized pressure around the entire neck. It rests softly against the front of the shoulders. You get no rub. It functions super well. And then the other thing is that goats walk in kind of what I would describe as almost a a hippie style. Like if you were to say um, like a a catwalk style model who walks with a lot of hip, um, goats will walk that way when they're climbing with weight. And so if you don't have a bridging that can free float across their fur, then what you end up getting is is basically with a good pack season, you're going to have goats with bald hair where the bridging catches them on the back of the rump. Um, Also, most of them mount too low for a goat that needs to mount higher. And the other thing is how the cinch comes off the saddle has to be further back than traditional so that it stays, the front cinch stays on their sternum. So it's a completely different fit for an animal, but everybody just kind of designed a little pack horse or llama unit and put it on a goat and said, well, that must work. I hope they do okay. Um, but we really did the research and scale the structures and the miles to figure out what worked. And, we, uh, and I have to admit, we still haven't 100% perfected our design, but I believe we're at about 98%. We're almost there. It wow. takes a lot. And our saddle adjusts on six different fulcrum points so that you can adjust for, if you could see me, I could kind of draw a picture but you know let's take a bower for example that's shaped like a 55 gallon drum and has an extra big room and he's going to be kind of a slanted extra wide in the back on a saddle that's going to fit him well plus it's almost going to be like putting it on top of a coffee table versus an a-frame alpine who's symmetrical front to back and really leaning do you, do you see i don't know if that yeah no a- yeah that makes sense if, if, you, if you put a rigid saddle on those two goats, what happens is it doesn't fill either of them at all. They have like 10% contact. So that'd be like you and me trying to walk around on shoes that only touched 10% of the sole of our feet. Can you imagine how bad that would be? Yeah. Pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, It'd be like uh, having high, high heels on all the time. Right, in reverse. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Walking on, on the point of the high heel. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So now, I, I got a question though now about these saddles. Now I'm I'm on the YouTube here and I'm watching actually the uh your your animals going up and over logs and cross stream crossings and stuff. And I I wonder if I see these, these saddle bags are you know, they look quite large. How much do, can one adult uh, goat, pack goat, carry? Mm. 
So it's it's really interesting. That's a common knee-jerk reaction of somebody looking at the panniers, especially ones that are carrying low weight but high volume. So yeah. remember that I could put two sleeping bags, pillows, and potato chips in there, and it looked like an 80-pound load because it looks volume. You know, it looks big. Yeah. So we generally as a rule, and, and it's very important that we answer that question with one condition, and that is conditioning. So the question would be, if we were to try to answer it accurately, how heavy of a goat can carry what load if he's in good condition, right? Because it's a function of a percentage of body weight. Yes. So I, I like to suggest between 20 and 25% of body weight. And if they're in condition, we can push it up to 25 to 30. I've had as much as 35 of my goats, and they've done awesome. But I also want a goat that can perform for, you know, 10 years in the backcountry instead of just six because I crushed him all the time, right? Right, right. For my, for my goats, most of my goats run between 200 and 250 pounds. So 25% of that will run anywhere from 50 to 70. Um, is what I'll run on my goats. The majority of time, my goats are carrying between 30 and 50, though, because I have 12 in my string, and I always want them being in condition, so I take everybody on every trip, and I don't have to load anybody heavy. Right. That Mm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of the goat, uh, what kind of goats are you using for your breeding program to create a more ideal animal for the job that they're taking on so i've I've ran every species of goat except for kiko um so run you know all the meat breeds and the dairy breeds and by far the best performers because what we're going for i mean the knee-jerk thought and this is where we thought in the beginning well bigger's better and so let's get some meat in there so we get some poundage and i i you know, I ran goats that weigh 290 pounds and they're in shape. And those guys consistently are like if you or I were going to run a seven-mile race, would you pick the guy that's built like a wide receiver or would you pick the lineman? Well, you're going to pick the wide receiver. And what we're doing with these goats is we're doing endurance competition. And if you think about how a goat's engineered in its wild form, it evades predators by climbing through bursts of speed and using elevation and where it can get to to protect itself. They're not huge migrating animals that have to do it quickly. They don't run over long periods of time to evade prey. They're not endurance athletes. They're bursting quick speed and agility. And by far, the dairy breeds are what we're looking for. We're looking for tall, leggy, flat back. We like them to finish out 38 to 41 inches tall so they got good strides, can keep up, aren't carrying inefficient body weight. We like them shallow in the body. I like more leg than body. I like a little bit of width, but not too much width. I like the width for stability. Um, But if I get too much width, then they're packing inefficient weight. Um, And the dairy breeds just lead themselves to that. I don't really like the bowers. They're a dumber breed on the trail. Um, they also are, um, they have inefficient body mass and they're really difficult to keep lean. Same with the Kikos. These are goats that were bred to eat, um, right. not to live a long time. So so I've stuck really, I really like Alpines and La Manchos. Those are my two favorite. Um, 
and uh, I love that that hybrid. I also really like mixing in overs. Overs are a little complicated though because they don't quite have the size. And I would say that sables are also a breed that I really like. Only only like them more than saunas because I'm not a white goat fan. <laughs> I like a little, <laughs> I, I like a, I like color in my string. And so um, I stick to more of the, you know, the brown tones and the earth tone goats. And, you know, I, I, I just really like the beauty of it as well. Um, but uh, um, the sables will have a tendency to be a little 55-gallon drummy. So if I go with those breeds very often, there's a couple of breeders out here that have some really good leggy sables. Um, and I like them as well. So the, those are kind of my picks for sure. If you made me pick just one, it would probably be an Alpine, but La Manchas are like just right behind them. Mm -hmm. Now, I obviously did a little bit of research, and I've, I knew about you well before asking you to be on here. Uh, and in that research, I noticed that your breeding program runs a little bit different than uh, more conventional breeders, where you don't keep uh, old herd sire, right? You're not... You don't have a four-year-old buck in your pen. Uh, you tend to use the younger bucks from that year, whichever ones you like best, uh, that fit your needs best, and use them to cover your does. And then by the time breeding season is done, uh, if I got it right, um, you tend to weather them and then either move them onto a different herd to use as a pack goat, like they're intended, or you use them on your string. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. And I hold back a lot of what I call experimental stock that I'm testing how they're performing, what's working better, what's not. Um, but yes, that's correct. And, and I acknowledge publicly and have many times that I think it's been ineffective way. If my goal was to breed the perfect pack of, I would keep bucks in, in the pen because I've weathered some amazing producers and, and been really sorry about it at the same time. Um, I'm just, I don't want a sticky buck pin on my ranch. Don't. <laughs> yeah. I don't, so, my wife would agree with you there. The, the stinky buck pen, especially in the fall is not a fun one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, John, I think that because your stinky buck pen is under your bedroom window. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> so, um, so, my point with uh, asking that is that I'm sure there have been plenty of times where you were like, oh, man, that buck threw some amazing kids. Uh, but also with me just thinking about it more and reflecting on it, the goal of any breeder, no matter if it's for pack goats or show goats or for the milk parlor, is that you want the kids to be uh, a step ahead of their parents, right? So... Really, these bucks that you're using, yeah, it stinks that maybe there was one that threw some excellent kids, but his kids should be better than him. And, I mean, you should just keep moving forward. I mean, it's really kind of ingenious to think about it that way uh, for your purpose. Well, I guess, I guess you're right. As a, as a supposed nonconformist, I should have figured out why I was doing it smarter, and I didn't. <laughs> so, I, don't think it, I, I, I think maybe I had fumbled into it, but um, I, yeah, the, the other thing is, is I actually get to see that goat perform. And because those are often from, you know, my, my 
does, which I think are the cornerstone of any breeding program, I can pretty closely match uh, another combination uh, of that with that doe again. And so, yeah, I don't know. I we'll see. It's we're so new. This is such new stuff. Hey, and, and, and let me let me ask you guys something. Let me ask you something. Something that has never. I mean, never made sense to me is this propensity in the show dairy goat ring to award these wiener goat super long bodied goes. What, why, what, that is such an unnatural form for a goat. It doesn't help them to fit in the stanchion any better. It doesn't help them that I know of. It doesn't help them to fit onto the you know the the milkers the, the the production milkers better but it seems like we're awarding these ex- like excessively long-bodied dairy goats and i don't get it can you explain it to me if it makes yeah sense? yeah so uh i'll take this and nate if you want to add on that's fine um yeah for for those long-bodied animals deep i'm and really deep animals uh you want that that larger carcass uh, in order to be able to withstand those really big lactations that these does have, um, you know, a lot of times, especially if you look, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, you'd see a shorter bodied animal that looked really frail and they were frail, uh, because they were really high producing animals, but their body couldn't withstand it. And honestly, with that frailness came a lack of longevity. So your animals weren't lasting 10, 12, 13, 14 years, you know, they, they disappear at seven. Um, so that longer bone pattern, that depth of body uh, is just to be able to keep that animal from producing like it should be and being able to sustain it. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't you get better results out of an overall conforming body mass then? So oh. if that if that's the reason, why is it just a bigger goat rather than a, 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 a like a bias towards a longer goat? Well, a bigger goat doesn't necessarily mean that it produces uh, bigger quantities of larger quantities of milk. Um, so when you get bigger, you kind of get that coarseness that uh, kind of weighs towards the meat goat side, right? Um, where you get that dairy strength uh, with the length and and the overall correctness. I think the, the, the is that is that, is that documented and scientific? I'm sure UC Davis has done some kind of research on it. The the thing though is is it's not just the length of body; it's supposed to be kind of married with the depth of depth and the width of body. It's the really it comes down to is the animal has to have room for the um, the guts, you know, the, the the stomachs, the intestines, the heart, and the lungs to um, feed the the mammary, okay, with uh-huh. energy, with nutrients to produce that milk um i'll tell you i've had those who were long bodied but weren't didn't have the body capacity to um to milk what they were milking and they they 
they put, you know, 10, 12 pounds a day in the milk pail, but they didn't have um, enough, uh, enough digestive system. They didn't have enough um, room for the heart and the lungs to give them the energy um, to move things around, quite frankly, to make it so that when they produced that 10 to 12 pounds, it, it didn't take from the rest of the body and leave right. you with this skinny looking animal where people look at it and go, oh, you're not feeding enough, but you're going, well, I'm feeding it everything I can get in it. Right. Okay. And so a long bodied animal without the width and the depth is not as desirable either. Right. Um, and, and it does end up getting you probably a bigger animal too. And on that, um, on that point, Nate, uh, I have a doe in my barn, Mark, who, uh, she's eight, uh, going on nine. She's what we call a old style Oberhasli, right? She's kind of older school, short bodied, a little bit roachy. Um, she has depth, but she is short bodied. And with that short bodiness, um, she produces a lot of milk. And I'll tell you, she's a hard keeper. I mean, if I didn't know what I was doing, and when I first started out, I sure didn't. Uh, she was a skinny, frail thing. And it takes a ton of work just to keep condition on her uh, because she milks so much and her body can't withstand that. And she, I mean, she's just, she would be super frail. Uh, mm. And if she was longer and a little bit deeper um, and more correct, she'd probably... Uh, not be as such a hard keeper. And I'm sure with pack goats, the last thing you want is something that uh, is a hard keeper where you have to put a lot of energy into. You want something that's going to be able to be fed, milked, um, you know, give them grain and, and they're good to go, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and we're milking in the backcountry. Well, so I just want to tell you how grateful I am for you to take the time to answer that question for me because I've, I've, I've just, I've never had anybody in that, in that, that the, the show goat world and, and, and everybody's breeding for it explain to me in a way that I could understand, um, you know, that. And if, if, if I were, <clears throat> I know I'm breeding for an animal that can carry weight and walk, mm -hmm. but that's also a function of natural movement, right? So, yeah. and I, it, and, and we know that hybrid vigor has validity. We know that rolling in genetic diversity creates some, some really beautiful aspects to, to any, any long-term line bred animal in terms of, you know, getting them back to some of their natural essence. And, you know, I spend so much time with bugs and things that, that are different, um, that I'm looking at that it, it is just super interesting. Um, it's just super interesting. And so I, I really appreciate it. I just want to tell you oh, how yeah. answered that question. For sure. Um, yeah. Now getting back onto you, Mark. <laughs> uh, um, so you, you started out, you, you're breeding your own goats, you know, you, you market them online, um, you know, and, and obviously talk to people face to face or on the phone. Um, but you also 
uh, do public speaking where you put on clinics uh, to teach people about pack goating. Um, you take them to the back country with your with a couple of goats from your string. Um, you've talked to the American uh, Pack Goat Association and had clinics with them. Uh, it's it's really unique to see somebody that's on top of the game um, with either show goats or pack goats or whatever, and they're eager to share that information of their successes. Um, how how did you come apart? You know come away with with starting to do public speaking and, and stuff like that? Huh, super interesting question. Uh, well, so we're kind of back to the other subject again. I truly do believe in the long run, and I'm a deep believer in God, and I believe that God is preparing me to be in a place to be the human steward on behalf of goats. Um, so they wanted to do a reality show on me and, um, that's still, I do a lot of work with Hollywood for my other business. I'm a hunting consultant. Um, I'm in a documentary on death and the, the whole goat string is in there. I actually shoot one of my goats on that film and, and butcher them and eat them. And, um, I just, I believe that we've gotten so far from, you know, the intended purpose of our coexistence with animals and how we consume food and how we revere the land and how we, how we move through this space as, as human beings and as it relates to, to what seems to be this animal that I was chosen to have in my life, which was a goat. Um, I, I, you know, was, was given the gift of wordsmithery and, um, I'm supposed to use those gifts for the good of the planet, the good of, you know, human beings and the good of our, you know, evolutionary process. And I think, I think personally, so here's, here's one of my missions and, and I would love to call to the people in the community and say this because I hear a lot of negative speaking about pet goat owners. You know, I, I see it in the, in, the, in the forums and I hear it spoken about, geez, well, those people who own them as pets are, you know, they don't know what they're doing and, and they don't. I get it. And they make a lot of dumb choices and they're overly emotional in the choices that they make. And, and I would agree that this is all just education and ingratiation, right? And, and, and we can do that. And I believe that we will, we, I, I hope to be a part of a cause that challenges the current municipalities that says I can have three barking, potentially dangerous predators with stinky poop in my backyard, but I can't have two little dairy goats that get my family milk. What is wrong with us if that's true? And that oh, is such a ludicrous fact. Go ahead. No, it, it, I agree. And I, I agree. I even would say, say, for that matter, even chickens. Correct, yeah. So chickens, they had some human stewards who stood up and said, hey, these are a viable animal. Why would we limit our population from having something that could produce protein in our backyard that would deburden the planet to feed these people eggs? Why, why would we do that? How does that make sense? Well, I would, I would say the same about goats. I mean, if they're going to have a pet, it just barks and poops. Why not have a, a pet that, 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 you know, is, is what a goat is and also gives milk or meat? 
And, and why is it such a ludicrous fact to people that they would butcher an animal that they had raised from a baby that they actually had a relationship with? Right. Why is that? Why is that weird? You know, I mean, we are so far from reality and how we consume our food that we actually think something's wrong with that. Well, and the interesting is with the pack goats is it's a partnership, right? And that's something that is lost with uh, a lot of things in life um, when it comes to animals. Um, so you have this partnership with these animals, you train with these animals, you work very, very hard to keep them healthy and keep them in shape. And then you take them out into the backcountry and you take them either hiking with you or hunting and they pay for themselves by helping you with that end goal, which is either reaching the summit or getting, you know, bagging that harvest and taking it out of the backcountry with you. Um, so it's, it's a relationship that um, is unique, really. Yeah. It, it is, it is, but you guys have dairy goats, and you and I both know, I mean, if you, you guys run milking machines, I, I hand-milked for five years before I ran a milking machine, and that, oh. and I'm sure you guys had that those moments, too. You guys, you, you guys hand-milked before, right? Oh, I still hand-milk. I, <laughs> I hand-milked for over 30 years. <laughs> right. So, you know how it is. The dough appreciates you and you appreciate the dough. It's a teammate ship, right? It's a exactly. really special connection energetically between you and that animal that was, you know, you can call it God or whatever you choose to call it. I choose to call it God. And, and, and that was a natural, beautiful thing. Well, it's the same with meat. And it's the same energy that also has these goats walking their guts out, staying up with me. I mean, last year I did three 21-mile days by GPS. One of those, oh, wow. One, yeah, one of those three 21-mile days, we did 9,000 feet elevation. Holy and cow. we packed out two bulls that day. So two elk on seven miles. Awesome. Holy yeah. cow. So those, those goats were just as done as I was. But they, the, the camaraderie and the accomplishment and the, it was just so special, so special to work alongside an animal like them. And they love it. They love to work. So cool. Now, I, I'm going to backtrack a second of it. Um, you know, we're talking about the people who um, don't have that much experience with goats. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I've been on your uh, website, and you know, of course, you get the YouTube uh, videos and, and such. You do quite a bit of uh, you do courses. Mm-hmm. I see. In in uh, you have an outreach and education. Now, in, I, I'm presuming that now what? How, how did I just want to you know to highlight that to mention that you do that? You got your goat club. You know, that you've got, um, and then you've got these, uh, you know, like the milking course bundles, and you got a pack course bundle, and, and then there's things like how to milk the goat, or, um, you know, raising the baby goat, or building, you know. Lots of information. Um, 
I'm just noticing you're going through this and so you do we talk about how you're doing the design work on on the pack and working with the animals but you also have this whole other branch where you're working teaching people things mm-hmm. um, well, that, go ahead sorry and I think I understand. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, so you know, in our customer base, like you know, of of our customers last year that bought baby goats from us, about ninety four percent when surveyed, it was the first goat they ever bought. Hmm. So we are we are we are literally putting hundreds of babies uh, in the hands of people who know zero. They know nothing. The only thing that they know is they might be able to ask a question on goats, tips, and tricks and get 30 answers back that are totally different. Eight people are. Yeah. Right. Right? Yep. So, and there's, as you guys know, there's so much legend and lore. The vets don't know goats. Finding a vet that does or a neighbor. It, I mean, it's just, it's, it's literally the guessing game. And the one who pays the price is the goat. And so I just said, okay, I've, I've had it. I'm over this. I can teach people how to raise a baby goat. So I'm going to make a course. And so I have a, a whole course that basically walks them through how to hold the bottle, how to give them their CD&T shot, how to recognize and treat diarrhea when it shows up, how to, you know, how to properly build a shelter that, I mean, how many times do you, you know, I mean, I show them how to transport goats. I mean, I can as anybody who sells goats has seen it before. So they, you know, your customer shows up, Hey, how are you? Okay, cool. Is, is, is that what you're going to take them home in? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. I go, well, are you going to put them in the trunk? Is that what you were thinking of doing? Yeah. Well, no, you, you have to go get something that, that can haul a goat properly. Right. So I have a chapter on how to, how to haul goats. I have a chapter on, you know, how to bring new goats in. I mean, just every single thing about taking a goat from, from zero to its first year in life. I mean, how to, how to prevent coccidia and all the things that nobody, everybody learns by the price of the goat. The goat pays the price of the lack of knowledge. And so that was the first one I just said, I'm, I'm tired. Number one, I'm tired of trying to answer all the questions about my goat just poops his pants and what do I do? Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, yep. so I started trying to alleviate some of my workload because I'm always going to help. I always pick up the phone and I always call back. But at the same time, I want to be a good dad and a husband and, you know, be a good human. And that doesn't mean I want to talk about poopy butt goats all the time. Right. So, so I made the course and then I made a course with Kristen Sullivan of the Simple Pulse because I knew a lot about, you know, how, how to how to you know run my milk goats but she was literally a really you know leading authority so we did a we did a course together and then i have a course now that we're in the final stages on uh, helping people with all the improper body conditions um when you help a goat have a baby and and that really came from where we've all been, which is three o'clock in the morning, nobody can call a bawling doe that you know is going to die if you and the baby, for that matter, if you don't know what to do. And and I've yep. been there, and that was so horrible and such an awful experience. I just said, I am never. If I can do something to make somebody not have to go through that, so our birthing course is awesome. It shows all the positions and it shows people how to turn. We have like something like 29 live births on that complication. Wow. So, I mean, we, 
we show people how to do all that stuff and the, the pack up one-on-one course shows them everything from you know how to set your campsite how to protect them from predators how to teach goats to load in the, the trailer i mean i think what honestly makes there's really nothing in this that i'm really that special with except for one thing and because i've had to work with these animals on the trail as much of i have as i have I have learned, I believe, a, a, a goat, um, how to work. I basically have learned how to train goats probably better than most. I think I know how to communicate with the goat in a way that he can understand and be successful quickly, how to, how to lightly reprimand, how to encourage in the right direction, and how to help them be successful in what I'm asking of them. And I've learned when you can put pressure on them and when you can't. If, if, if I'm a thought leader in anything, it's really actually that. Maybe that and how to put a saddle on their back and some of that stuff. But really, I think what makes me special is learning the mannerisms of a goat and how to train them. Well, right. well it, it, I would say in, in this, with that, you know, you're your courses your everybody wants to see when they sell it whether it's a dairy goat a meat uh meat goat a pet goat you want to see that animal succeed and you want that animal that person who's buying them to learn the language of that animal that how to handle them how to recognize their needs their wants and yeah. you know hopefully that animal in that new owner you know I want to say jives, but maybe that's not a good word anymore. But they jive together. They, well, they yeah. Um, you know, the new owner can communicate and, and understand what's going on with that animal, and well, it's, it's vice versa. It's pretty ingenious. Yeah, you, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say it's pretty ingenious because I know for myself, uh, I've definitely sold goats where you're like, man, I hope it turns out okay, and you never hear. From them again and you're like oh i wonder what happened to that goat um where you're giving these people these this information uh you know if they choose to use it is on them but uh you're giving them that information to i mean i'm sure that gives you a little bit peace of mind well it does and you know you and i both know i mean we all had our first well and it sounds like it sounds like Nate didn't have his first year of goat ownership. In my first year of goat ownership, I was literally having the vet over to help me worm my goats. <coughs> I, paid, I paid a vet a hundred plus dollars to come drench my goats and tell me whether it needed to be done or not. And I'm like, I, I, I spent so much unnecessary money that first year because I had no idea what I was doing, and that was my only resource. That I, I mean, my course cost like seventy nine bucks. That's the price of one vet visit. I guarantee every single person that gets that course is going to save themselves seventy nine bucks in vet visits. I right. guarantee it. Oh yeah, you know. So so I would say to your listeners and whatever. I mean. It, 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 un, unfortunately, I think I, it's one of the only forms of this course that exists in America. I mean, and I sell it all over the world. My customers are all over the world. And so, you know, what I would say is, you know, to your to your listeners, if you want some of your customers to, number one, not call you about poopy pants, 
successful the other day, and you also want them to be successful take care of the goat, I actually require that my customers buy the course. And they have a monetary investment now to watch it and learn about it. You know, and, it, and I'm telling you, my phone quit ringing. That was worth its weight in gold in terms of just troubleshooting poopy pants. I'm sure. Now, it's no secret that Pack goats, the sport is growing exponentially. You know, I've got people that have messaged me, you know, on the, on the Facebook for our podcast, you know, asking about, uh, doing an episode about pack goats and how they have a club going in their area. Um, have you seen like a huge, uh, surgence of, of people getting interested in, in pack goats? It's really super crazy. It's really cool. It's beautiful because um, it's such a neat role for all these weathers that used to be destined for the stew pot. Um, but at the same time, um, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's, well, I mean, let's just say, you know, when I started 10 years ago, there was maybe, maybe 50 or 60 people that actually had goats that they would call pack goats. Now, for sure, there's three or 4,000. Wow. I, I don't even know the number, but it's grown, you know, by hundreds and hundreds of percent since mm -hmm. we started. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly, and, and I don't think we've seen the end of the burst. I mean, it's, it's really, and, the, and, the, and this is where we need you guys. We need your muscle. We need your organization, you know, and, and we need to speak about this if, if, if you're willing, which is we are literally being bullied with bad science and fear tactics off of public land. And the predominant entity that's doing that is the most well-funded pro-animal organization on the planet, which is the Wild Sheep Foundation. And the Wild Sheep Foundation is an incredible, incredible group doing wonderful and amazing things for wild sheep but they do not care who they have to stomp on to protect their beloved single critter. And unfortunately, we consistently get lumped in, which all of us in the goat world shake our head and say, what are they thinking with sheep as the same species? When they are legislating public land, it always says sheep and goats. And they mm -hmm. speak about us as the same species, and we're not even remotely close. They should talk about cows and goats, and that would be closer. Right? <laughs> so it's just, it, it's this really ridiculous thing, and we are being banned out of entire states with literally like overreaching bureaucracies and overstepping governments that are doing it based on fear and agenda and money-based bought science and it is super unfortunate and we need to go to the goat community's help what is what, what is the issue with that are they uh are they fearful that they that goats are going to transmit uh cae or yonis no, nothing nothing with that it's emovi so emovi is uh you know uh, goats have a form of emovi um, and Amovia is a, a bacteria that affects the mucal linings. And what it does is basically weaken their ability to move mucus. And so as a result, what happens when sheep get it with, with, with 
uh, poor immune systems, what they end up doing is dying of pneumonia. And goats can have MOV. And so we actually did a study um, about five years ago, uh, and we studied through nasal swabs three different ones of every pack goat in the country, over 500 um, like six years ago, we were involved in the study, and we had six cases of MOV, and they were all in juveniles. And uh, so what, what would have to happen, if you think about it, if less than 1% of pack goats and no adults have MOV, then what would have to happen is that we would actually have to have an adult with MOV, but which we still haven't found yet. And then that adult would have to be lost on public land, it would have to be shedding of the virus at the exact moment that it touched nose to nose on a wild sheep. So they'd have to find the wild sheep and touch them nose to nose. And then we would have goat MOV within wild sheep populations. So that sheep, by the way, has a better chance of dying of lightning strike than they do of catching MOV from a pack goat, yet we're being banned off of massive tracts of land because of that potential risk. Wow. On top of that, on top of that, Imovi is in every mountain goat in North America. Imovi has been found in deer, elk, whitetail, mule deer, moose, caribou, uh, and almost every other ungulate species in North America. Yet our pack goats are somehow this massive threat to these wild sheep populations. And again, it's not about founded science. It's about using the same lie over and over. And the main study they quote is the Besser study it's out of uh, Washington State University. He basically co-mingled goats and wild sheep for six months. They got along. Everybody was good. Everything happened all good. Then they gave the goats goat MOV. The goats got a cough and a sniffle, and they gave it to the wild sheep, and they got a cough and a sniffle. Everybody caught a cough and a sniffle. Then they all got better. And he went, huh. So he killed the wild sheep, studied their mucal linings, found the presence of Emovi in their mucal linings, and said, huh, well, I guess goats kill sheep. And now that's the study that they use to ban us off of national parks and, and land. And it's just it's super, super unfortunate. And it's, it's a story we hear over and over again where money is dictating fear and fear is dictating policy. Hmm. Now... I have a question. Is it just pack goats that they're banning off of federal lands, or is it uh, agricultural, you know, milk goats and meat goat farms from grazing on the land, too? Yeah, so they, in Alaska, they've gone as far to try to actually limit people from owning goats on their own farms in Alaska because of the potential threat to doll sheep. Wow. Oh, wow. I know, right? So, and it's, and it's been proposed and attempted, and I believe they beat it up there. But, yeah, you can't run pack goats in the backcountry of Alaska at all, at all. They're not allowed. Same with New Mexico. And the way New Mexico passed it, is they didn't even have to actually pass it. They just did an emergency action. So under the guise of this thing that really was to combat wildfires, but again, you hear these kind of stories all the time, they did an emergency action, and that emergency action banned pack goats in the entire state of New Mexico. Supposed to be temporarily. Wow. Wow. Hmm. The irony is that they recently are uh, 
saying that goats help can help prevent fire. Yeah, the whole wildfire and the brush eaters. Yeah, 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 and, yep, yep. It's interesting. That's crazy. Well, I think that's something where you know our listeners who are you know want to get you know active, you know, contact their their legislators, um, Washington. If you're in those states. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah well, state legislators yeah. Yeah. Um, and and one of the things too is they can join NAFCA so NAFCA is who is the organization that fights on our behalf and you know goes to these you know national forest meetings and we have a lawyer that challenges some of their policies and we've actually won in court um, but NAFCA only has like 500 members and it only costs 20 dollars a year to be a member we, we need oh. help we need people with money and time and energy. It's a volunteer army. And, you know, that group is a, a, a bunch of people like you and me that are trying to hold down jobs and fight on behalf of, you know, goats on public land. I mean, and again, you know, people don't care. People don't care right. as we listen, or, you know. So, so yeah, we could, we could use the help. Yeah. It's so crazy that they wouldn't just say, okay, if you want to come on public land, you have to have your whole herd tested once a year. And mm-hmm. and then you know carry around this vaccination card, right? <laughs> but carry around this card uh, to well, look, to prove know, it. It's like if we want to go to Connecticut, John. Yeah. You know we have to have our animals tested for TB and brucellosis. We test them. We get a, a sheet with the animal's name on it. They've been tested. They passed. We can go. Why can't that be done on these lands? You know, you, you I can, mean, they, they, they can, know. and that, yeah, you can, and that was done, that was done in Wyoming, but every national forest is different, mm-hmm. and it's a big, large group of bureaucracies, and it's expensive, it's like 160 bucks a goat. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You know, so. Is that a blood like test, or? It's a nasal swab. Oh, wow, that's <laughs> crazy. It's just I, an having, uncommon test. I'm saying, having had a few uh, nasal swab tests myself, uh, I can <laughs> say that's got to be a challenge with the goats. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, even, wow. that, even if we made it more affordable for pack of people to have that, but only so far, only one has actually chosen that as a compromise. Okay, well, we will let you on, but only with proper testing. But almost nobody goes there now because the testing is again so expensive and it's a hassle and it only lasts so long and you know it's just it just feels you know it feels oh, yeah. unwelcoming yeah for sure i mean yeah these public lands are for the public and they're singling out the one group that utilizes mm-hmm. pack goats like it's just yeah right. It's interesting. Well, and again, I mean, yeah, it's just, you know, it's again, there's this strange uh, uh, propensity towards uh, the human bureaucracy to believe that human beings are the problem, right? We, If we could just keep those darn human beings out of there, then we'd be okay. Right? Yeah. So, so we, need to, we need to begin looking at, you know, how human beings are part of the solution and how can we coexist in all things and, you know, and it just seems like a, a mindset problem right now that we have. But, um, yeah, you guys should, you should see these guys in the backcountry, though, how agile they are, doing their natural thing, crossing water, swimming, eating natural forbs, and, and they're so gentle on the 
land. I mean, as far as the stock animal in the back backcountry, you know, they have a deer's hoof print, a deer's poop. Um, you know, they don't dilute the land. They don't eat everything in sight. They eat a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's very difficult to to, to recognize that a pack goat strain has been in a campsite because mm-hmm. they just they leave a little footprint by comparison to horses and rockets. So as as far as an animal goes and to see these guys out there doing what they were born to do, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Well, it's, it's pretty impressive, especially, you know, I don't know if we've covered this, but uh, you guys don't disbud your, your goats. You keep them, their horns intact. I'm, I'm assuming probably as a form of protection against, uh, you know, the grizzly bears or black bears or what, what have you out in the backcountry, but uh, they're very impressive with those horns. Yeah, goat, goats are a neat animal, and even the does, you know, they all, for me, because it's the way I've been around goats, is that, you know, I, I, I always wonder what's missing, right, when when, when they don't have them, uh, and it's, it, you know, they have a lot of fun cracking heads, and, you know, you don't know until, it, it, there's actually a, a three-part series on my YouTube channel, if people really want to watch me pack in the backcountry, I have a three short films that are that are dedicated to that. And they're, they're quite touching, to be honest with you. Um, and one of them has uh, a sequence where I'm climbing some some crazy steep, gnarly country. I mean, stuff that yeah, you never think a stock animal can go on. I mean, crazy stuff. And in fact, when we got off that, I said to myself, I am never doing something like that again. I could have killed the goat there. Um, but... Um, what I realized in that context, when those goats would begin to fall, they would actually use their horns as a fifth appendage, and they would catch themselves with it. So when they'd stumble instinctually, they would use their they would tip their horns into the mouth to hold them themselves in place. It was the coolest thing. If you actually watch that sequence where we're coming across that hill, and I go, "Okay, everybody, take a second. We got a we got some tired goats." One of my white goats in the background, Noah, um, literally does it right at that moment. He sticks his head into the to the hillside and like holds himself in the position with his horns. <laughs> Holy cow! <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I watched. I'm I'm an avid hunter, so I, I love those those short films that you have. Uh, you know, elk hunting and and it's just like like that's like every hunter's dream is to pack out. Um, Usually it's it's pack out with like horses or mules. I'm not a horse or mule guy, so like seeing you do it with goats, I'm like, oh man, I gotta. This has got to be like bucket list item someday. It's so cool. Yeah, it's it's super cool. Yeah, I mean, because because not we're hunting alongside them too. They're with us, right? So I was gonna ask it. that. Oh yeah, no. So we we hunt right with them. They're. I, I don't ever talk about this publicly very often. I, I will with your group, but. Um, you know, they're they're one of the most fantastic decoys out there. And you know, when I'm when I'm calling in an elk or you know, and, and he comes in and, and you know, traditionally when you're calling in a bull you go quiet as they're getting in the close range because they'll zero in on you and you let them kind of wander in and and when you go quiet they're like, Okay, well, where did everybody go? Hey, I knew there was somebody up here. What's going on? Something's wrong. But when they come in and see four legs and some horns and it's like, oh, okay, cool. Here's my peeps. My peeps are here, you know, and they'll, you'll see them relax and they'll come in. They're super curious. What's that? And, you know, they'll, they'll come in. I mean, I've had, 
and my goats are, you know, in, in September, that's the early part of the rut. They're all weathers. So as soon as I set up the call, my goats will start raking brush with their horns. And yeah. noise. I literally <laughs> called an elk without calling because my goats were just raking and the, the bulls came into their noise um, more than once. I also had a liver goat named Eli, and he was like my bird dog. He would point grouse all the time. I, I, got, I, I got to, he, he was like my lookout, you know, so he always saw stuff before I did. And so I started really tuning in to his name was Eli. I really started tuning in to Eli and paying attention to him as we were moving through stuff. And, and one time Eli came on point downhill downwind or up and he was he was really focused on the wind that was coming up out of this little basin below us and so i stepped up to him and he was just locked up like a bird dog and i and i smelled and i could smell elk and i was like okay now it's gonna sound weird but i've been i've been i've killed 29 elk with my bow it's it's a my life's work right it's what i do mm-hmm. other people sit behind the desk i hunt elk right so I had never, until that time, I had smelled elk my whole elk hunting career. I had never assumed that actually meant I had a live elk down there. I thought it meant, oh, they've been in here, they've been peeing, they've been pooping, but I can't actually smell an elk standing 100 yards down a mountain, can I? Well, he came to point, and I went, you know what? He's so good, I'm going to trust him. And I just told my partners, I said, set up. Let's just set up right here. I don't hear anything, but let's just set up. And I called in seven bulls from that one spot. There was an entire herd right below us. Wow. So I set up on every single one. And I learned one of my most valuable animal killing skills from an animal. Right? And the fun part is, you know, when you dump, a, when you dump an elk and they're dead and, and the goats come up, they just come up like cool in the gang. There's no fear. There's no trepidation. They're not nervous. I mean, I work with my goats. I know their mannerisms. I know when they're nervous. I know when they're worried. It's the coolest thing to see how in tune animals are to the natural death process. The only one that thinks that an animal dying and that we're going to eat it is weird is us. Animals know that's what's going to happen. They get it. They realize that's their role. That's what that's what they're doing here. They're here to feed somebody and live a good life until they feed somebody. Um, and and goats kind of are like, yeah, okay, yeah, there's another one. Sweet, okay, cool. Everybody hangs out. I butcher them out. I cut them into you know a billion different pieces so they'll fit in the panniers, and then they load the meat on goats, and everybody goes happily back to camp. Going, sweet, we did it. Yeah, and it's really a cool thing. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Like, I definitely bucket list item. Um, now, Mark, I, I'd love to talk more with you about pack goats, and I think if enough interest, and I'm I'm sure we will get enough interest, we should have you on again in the future sometime. Um, but we're we're sure. run, running running a little bit long here. Um, if people wanted to find out more information about you and your pack goats, uh, where can they find you? Oh, and also if they wanted to find more information about the goat guys calendar <laughs> if you ever need if you ever need a fat guy for the calendar uh, i'm your guy uh, but <laughs> where can they find you at? so so the goat guys calendar is to help us to raise money to, to fight for the public land issues to do lots of different things to to fund trying to help goats and so we put 
four models. I'm one of them. And we took our shirts off and unbuttoned our shirts and wore our shirts and did a classy, fun, almost fireman style <laughs> calendar with cute little baby goats. And they can find that on packcoats.com. Um, and, and that's where if, if any of your listeners basically Google anything to do with packcoats, they'll find me. But I have an Instagram uh, that's Mark Warnke. I have Facebook that is, I have a, a you know, a site that's packoats.com. I also have a group that's just called Pack Goats um, that, that people can find me on. And, um, you know, of course, packoats.com. And then my hunt consulting business is Top End Adventures. And that's kind of my other thing. But um, yeah, they can find me at any of those places. I'm really quite easy. And then the YouTube channel is also called packoats.com. So anything packoats.com, they'll find me. Perfect. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure having you on. I learned quite a bit about pack goats and what what everybody's looking I, I for. Did too, yeah. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I'm sorry if I got a little long-winded. I could be passionate. No, no, oh, was, so are we. <laughs> so uh, everybody, thank you for joining us. This has been Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. I'm John. That's Nate with guest Mark. Yep. We'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, fellas. Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast, is not an affiliate of the American Dairy Goat Association. All opinions or information regarding the ADGA does not represent the registry.